Hey y'all, welcome to our third and final episode of the series on sexual trauma with Dr. Karen Abdul. It's been a heavy past two episodes and I'm happy to say we now get to the good part of Dr. Karen's story, which is healing and recovering from sexual trauma. I think the most powerful thing about all this, even as we delved into some very triggering and difficult parts of Dr. Karen's story, which also has challenged me to explore difficult parts of my own story, and maybe it's challenged you to explore difficult parts of your own story as well. I think the encouraging thing in all this is that we can explore our stories knowing that the past does not define our future. Knowing that the beauty of healing and recovery surpasses all the ashes that were the darkness of our experience and trauma. And that is something that is available to all of us as Dr. Karen will share her story. And I hope that this episode leaves you feeling hopeful, whether you have experienced sexual trauma or there's something difficult that you're dealing with, that this episode might provide some inspiration and clarity to help you along your journey of restoration. And so without further ado, let's get to the episode. It was a very, very lonely journey for a very long time. And along the way, finding other people who were supportive of me was critical to my process. It was perhaps more critical than finding a psychiatrist and, you know, getting therapy. The overwhelming outpouring of support and love and care that I received from them once I did that without judgment and without pity, with, with a sense of camaraderie and caring, I would say was, was perhaps the biggest, biggest thing. But first I had to get to the point where I couldn't take it anymore. So Dr. Karen, continuing where we left off, we really dove into how sexual trauma begins in childhood and some of the complexities behind sharing it and having a voice. We even talked about how in adulthood, experiencing sexual abuse. But what we haven't yet touched on, and I'd love to begin to hear some of your thoughts on this, is it might have been years since we might have encountered that event. It might have been maybe when we were children. And oftentimes, I think a lot of people may say that happened years ago. That happened so many years ago. Like, I'm just trying to move on and live my life. What are some of the effects that we might experience in the present moment, but we might not understand that there are real effects that we experience when we've encountered sexual abuse or uh, sexual trauma? I think a lot of the time, People are very, very unaware of their bodies when it comes to sex, especially Christians, because sex is treated so much as though it's other than it's other than ourselves, it's other than our spiritual selves, other than who we are in our relationship with God. Mm. And so we are not fully understanding our sexuality. It's not discussed in church. At least I, I never had yeah. discussions about sexuality in church. We had discussions about morality. We had discussions, as I mentioned in the last one, about sexual violence, because abuse, rape, incest, all of these are manifestations of violence. That To discuss those is not a discussion of sex. So we don't fully understand what's supposed to happen during sex. And a lot of the times, both women and men develop really unhealthy patterns of relationships with their own bodies and with other mm -hmm. people because of this. So mm -hmm. let's start with women, because, of course, I am a woman. Yes. Um, and so and, and, you know, it's easier to talk about women because there have been more work done. Mm. around what happens to women. So when someone has been sexually traumatized, we find that they have similar responses to other types of trauma in terms of kind of the, the psychological 
reaction, which is the fight, flight, freeze. Everybody's very familiar with that. So perhaps 50% of women who are raped or molested in some way in childhood or early adulthood, either one, this isn't relegated to childhood, tend to fight. And often the way they fight is by attempting to get control of the situation in which there was no control. And so they tend to become promiscuous and sort of repeat the sex act over and over again in an attempt to control it. And within that, there can be a lot of problems. People can be very fulfilled sexually without connecting at all emotionally. Some people can look for sort of an emotional boost, but then not have sexual fulfillment. So there'll there'll be women who they just won't have relationships, but they can have orgasms. And then there'll be the opposite where there are women who uh, will, you know, fall into relationships very quickly. They become serial monogamists. Uh, we, I don't know if we understand that term, but sort of get in a relationship, break up, you know, get in a relationship, break up, get in a relationship, break up. But then when you have a discussion with them about sex, they, they've never really had an orgasm or it's very difficult for them to have one. They don't connect with their own bodies sexually. And they, they sort of use the process to get other things they want in relationship like the companionship and the the love, the caring, the gentleness, et cetera. Each of those is unfulfilling Uh to us as what we understand ourselves to be as spiritual human beings. So that can cause a lot of issues. And then there are other women who freeze or flee. So some women avoid sex and they have a very, very hard time connecting on a sexual level with their partner. And it, it becomes a big issue, especially when women marry. Because if you sort of think of it this way, the sexual act represented violence and threat. And this person has decided, I feel safe enough with my partner to entrust myself to them for the rest of my life. So the very last thing, somebody who is entrusting themselves to someone else is going to want to do is to run towards something that represents a violent threat. Mm. And so what ends up happening and can cause a lot of difficulty in marriage is that women will shut down sexually which can manifest in all sorts of physical and emotional ways. They will not be as responsive. They may have pain and vaginal tightness during penetration, during the act. They may find it very difficult to experience pleasure and orgasm. They may decide that they just don't want sex. And, you know, it can cause a lot of conflict Mm -hmm. for couples in marriage relationships. So that's one way that women avoid. Uh Another way they avoid is to just not enter relationships. They just avoid relationships. We're we're just, nope, they hide, literally sit and hide. Uh Um, And when a man approaches them, they they just, they don't know what to do. So they sabotage Uh or dismiss. Uh So, uh, and of course, those are generalities. And that's only sort of four different descriptions but there are over three billion women in the world so there are other ways that women will respond that that aren't covered here Mm -hmm. however when these issues start coming up for us as women um, and they start arising in marriages and partnerships then We need to, something needs to go off in the back of your head that says, okay, something's wrong here. I should probably find a therapist and go talk about this because this is a problem. Um, Let's, uh, you know, let's sort of switch gears and talk about men. (laughs) 
Okay. Uh, wait, do you have <laughs> questions about that? Yeah. So do you think most do you think most women re- recognize those issues and automatically go out to seek help or more I'd say they're more willing than men. I'd say I'd probably admit that, but women are more willing than men, but yeah. I this is not something that I I don't think this is widely recognized. It sneaks up on you and then people are surprised. It's like, why am I not responding? Why, you know, people will say, you know, I just don't like sex. And they'll sort of accept it as this is the way my body is. I don't, I don't respond sexually. Right. So sometimes, you know, people have all sorts of responses. Sometimes people just take it and try it. Hey, I'm just, I'm, I just have a hard time. That's yeah. it. Yeah. But you know, that is not necessarily the case that you have a hard time. So it's important to understand yeah. that there may be something there that you have to figure out yeah. that you're struggling with, you know, yeah. and that maybe it's not that you're not a sexual being or that you just, you just have a hard time or that somebody, somehow your neurons are wired yeah. so differently that you can't experience pleasure. Yeah. but that there is a, a pathway that's been created by past experiences that is blocking your ability to experience pleasure. Mm. Do you have other mm. questions? Uh, let's talk about the men and then I'll... <laughs> <laughs> so with men, you yeah. know, it's, they are not discussed. This is an issue that I think only very recently is starting to be discussed. The issue of men and predatory sex. Because this is not, you know, what we think of typically as abuse in a wheelhouse of abuse, but it unfortunately is. Um, you know, and a lot of young men are exposed at very early and very developmentally significant ages to sex, to sex acts, to um, visual acts, to actual sexual experiences. Mm -hmm. And they come from multiple places. Often, you know, there's an older, older guy who is exposing the little young men to like different websites and things these days. It used mm-hmm. to be magazines before right. now it's websites, you know, pornography websites and mm-hmm. different places, but there are also women who will prey on young boys and who, because this is not, you know, the first thing one thinks of when one considers something sexual abuse, create a situation where a young boy begins to become very confused sexually, but he does not identify it as abuse. If if a 20-year-old or a 17-year-old or, you know, 17, sorry, year old young woman is babysitting a 12-year-old boy and she has sex with him or performs certain sexual acts, that is abuse. Yeah. That is abuse. You know, if he's 13, if he's 14, if he's 15, and a 28-year-old woman is performing sexual acts with him, that is abuse. Mm-hmm. The problem is the response for boys is markedly different. You know, if a 15-year-old goes and talks to his friends and says, hey, thus and such person over there who's 30 had sex with me. He'll be congratulated. He'll be lauded. He'll be, you know, like, whoa, you know, that, what, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so a lot of times when men fall into these kinds of promiscuous patterns of behavior, it is seen as quote unquote, what men do, as opposed to an altering of neural pathways because of aberrant sexual activity. So therein lies a dilemma. 
because it's one thing to identify what's happening with to you as abuse, acknowledge it and get help for it. It's another thing entirely for it to be completely socially acceptable or at least not be perceived as as much of a social problem and for people to to not only say that there's nothing wrong with you but that you're extra super great for having this thing happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so men tend to be completely, with, with, with that particular kind of scenario, completely obtuse. There, there's very, very little insight mm. into what's happening. And so, you know, later on, this kid is 25 years old and he's gone through all of the changes in mm-hmm. the neurodevelopmental changes that happen during puberty and teenage years. And, you know, his brain is pruned. And now there are certain pathways produced that say, okay, porn turns me on. That says, that say, you know, sleeping with six different women or whatever is, is part of life. You know, this, this person, he then tries to settle down with one woman and then he just, he can't, he's having problems, staying faithful. He's, you know, struggling and, and, you know, wants to be what we call a good man, but, you know, is having all kinds of tumultuous stuff happening in his relationship, um, having difficulty having sex with his wife, but, you know, responding to pornography, all of these different things are happening and none of this is identified as having a, an abusive source. Mm. So then uh, the discussion of abuse is not a part of his therapy. It's, you know, are you a sex addict? Are you a porn addict? Are you, a, you know, X, Y, and Z? And, you know, how do we get out of this? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. But that, the critical question of, you know, who am I without all of these sexual exploits that happened to me in the past, that, that's not explored. Yeah. So that is a big, big issue yeah. with young men. Yeah. And, and that is aside from what, what we typically consider abuse for young men, which is, you know, sodomy, you know, the rape of young boys, that the, that sort of thing is, is very clear. And, you know, the fact that it engenders very, very conflicting emotions for young boys is another issue that yeah. really needs to be discussed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, wow. no, that, that is, I think that just opens the Pandora's box. Cause it's like, again, like you said, like we, usually limit what we consider abuse to be this very explicit scenario where you are forcefully taken and you are put down, which of course that is considered abuse, but we limit it to that. And then I think we had talked about earlier that especially if you experience arousal, you might think, oh, I must have wanted it. So it's not, it's not abuse. And and so we ignore the fact that, you know, that's not abuse. That's just something that happened. And so you can't even name it and acknowledge it to be able to address it. So I think that's helpful to, I guess, expand the scope of how those experiences affect us, especially when they're younger. I mean, even personally, I can think to situations where I'm like, oh, that was oh, like mm-hmm. my friend, my best, my friend's older brother's ex- exposing me to this pornography like that's just that's what i have the guys do you just you know right it's, it's, it's a rite of passage yeah but mm-hmm. how it actually impacts you later on that's the different story and so my question here is like how do we begin to walk in that path of, of healing you know i I'm, you walk down that path and i'm guessing the experience is different for people what does it look like in terms of, okay, I may have been abused or I have been abused. I might be experiencing impacts of that. Now, what, what do I do? You know, what do I do now? So I struggled 
deeply, deeply struggled with my healing process. It took almost, it took decades. Wow. Number one, because there was a deep lack of education on how to heal from rape. And number two, because it was deeply, deeply stigmatized. I lived in a Caribbean country. Um, and at that time, you know, having sex outside of marriage for women was taboo to the nth degree. Oh. Um, and so even rape was perceived in some ways as being the women's fault. And so I felt that I had very little in terms of resources. There was very little support for me, you know, and there were people who were very, very close to me who, you know, they heard, I remember one person who was very close to me who heard, I told, I shared what happened and their response was, oh, Karen, now you're spoiled. Wow. And so I carried that around with me for decades and it colored every other relationship I had for a very, very long time because I thought of myself as spoiled. So my healing, I think, you know, really did not begin until maybe 10 years later when I just could not handle these feelings anymore. And by that time, I had been in relationships. I had been in domestic violence situations at mm. least twice, one of which was, was so bad that it ended up in the legal system. I had really struggled with my own self-esteem to the point where I just deeply, deeply abhorred myself. I had struggled with suicidality and depression, you know, just a lot, a lot of different things. I moved countries, <laughs> I moved continents, trying to start over. But of course, you can't move from yourself. And so I, you know, I still had to deal with me. And I remember one day trying to look at myself in the mirror, and I literally could not look at myself in the mirror. I just felt so horrible. And I remember forcing myself to look in the mirror. And it literally, I felt as though there were these jagged cracks. There were the, all of these little pieces of me that I was just splintered. And I was seeing that like sort of in my mind's eye as I was looking in the mirror. And I remember asking God to help me to put it together and forcing myself to look at me hmm. and imagine myself becoming whole. Hmm. I think that was the start of my journey. It was the sort of getting to the point of, I just, I can't do this anymore. Like, I just, I cannot walk around with this. I cannot handle this anymore. Hmm. And from there, acknowledging, you know, hey, this is, this is bad. This is bad. I'm depressed. <laughs> yeah. You know, I need to see a therapist. I need to get help. And so after a while, I started therapy very briefly. And I saw a psychiatrist after that. Um, and I got help for myself. Mm. Um, and it's very interesting that, you know, when, when I was first raped, I had some support from um, a pastor. But I did not get a lot of support, perhaps did not disclose a lot, but also did not get a whole lot of support from the church when I was going through the domestic violence issues and things like that. Mm -hmm. And I think in part it's because the church 
isn't trained to handle these things. Yeah. Um, doesn't really know how to deal with it. And so it was a very, very lonely journey for a very long time. And along the way, finding other people who were supportive of me was critical to my process. It was perhaps more critical than finding a psychiatrist and, you know, getting therapy because those people have been my friends for so long. They've stayed in my life. We're friends, you know, for decades. And I know that I can count on them as prayer partners. I know I can count on them as sources of wisdom. And honestly, in psychiatry, when we're trained, we are trained that the the trifecta really for healing depression, anxiety, and these types of illnesses is therapy, medication, and support from family and friends. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And support from family and friends is actually demonstrated clinically to improve the efficacy uh-huh. of medication and therapy. Uh-huh. So I would say my support from my friends has been sort of one of the most important and critical things that I could have had. And opening up to my friends about what happened to me was a long process, but I was able to do it. And the overwhelming outpouring of support and love and care that I received from them once I did that without judgment and without pity, with with a sense of camaraderie, Mm. you know, and caring. I would say was was perhaps the biggest, biggest thing. But first I had to get to the point where I couldn't take it anymore. Yeah. And, you know, that's what I'm, I'm hoping for those of you in podcast land that you don't wait until you get to that point where you don't take it anymore, because sometimes it's too late. Sometimes people wait and wait and wait, and then things get so bad that they attempt suicide you know, and complete it. Mm. So, you know, if if you find yourself depressed, if you've been in this situation, you find yourself depressed and isolated and alone, and you feel as though you, you know, are out of control of who you are as a human being, that is the time to reach out, call your primary care physician, say, I'm not doing so well, and I need some resources somewhere. Mm-hmm. Even if you start with your primary care physician, mm-hmm. you know, if you feel like the pastor won't understand, if you feel like your friends won't understand, you know, your primary care physicians, you know, we've we've taken an oath to care for you. Mm-hmm. Okay, so at least start there. If you have a good relationship with your pastor and your church, please reach out to the pastor mm-hmm. and say, I need some help. At the very least, they could help you find resources, even if they themselves are not, you know, equipped enough to handle the situation. But don't wait until you reach the, the bottom, bottom of everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. I I that's my prayer for for everyone is that we don't we don't wait till we're at our limits to seek out help. And I think I think oftentimes realizing that we may be functioning, but in a way that is like on survival mode. It's not in we're not thriving. We're just mm-hmm. you know, we're functioning, but we're not thriving. And mm-hmm. to know that there is a way that we don't have to live life in a flight freeze way. That's the, that's not how life is to be lived, right? Exactly. Right. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. what I appreciate you sharing is that you talking about your therapist and the importance of your friends, like 
it required engaging your story with other people which seems like such an amazing thing but it also seems hard right you know like what if they you know because i'm sure you had to be vulnerable it's yeah, yeah. I mean, like i said i i carried yeah. around for so many years the idea that i was spoiled that i did not mm. say anything to anyone for at least for a little less than a decade wow yeah. yeah, I just carried around that hmm. attitude. Yeah, that I that that idea that I was wow. spoiled, that I was spoiled, that this is what mm-hmm. you know I was good for, that I wasn't good enough to be married, I wasn't good enough, you know, I wasn't valuable anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. and it's a really horrible thing because it it really changes your perception of the world and your abilities and your worth as a human being. And, you know, the deep shame Mm. that comes with that, I mean, it renders people voiceless. Shame is a powerful, paralyzing emotion. Um, It literally paralyzes people. And, you know, I do want to say to people out there, when you see women behaving in certain ways, step back from the judgment. You don't know what's happening. Mm. You know, when a when a woman is, you know, very quiet and isolative in church or wherever, or when she is, you know, behaving in a promiscuous way, you know, various things. You know, you can definitely say, hey, this is not safe, you know, and I need you to hear me. No one is saying to condone Mm -hmm. that kind of behavior. But in acknowledging that the behavior is wrong and is not safe for her and is harmful, stay away from the judgment that this person is XYZ kind of person. There's a there's a leap from this action is not correct to this person is X type of person. That's a leap. And we make that leap often unconsciously. Mm. And so we see the action and we marginalize the person. Mm-hmm. So it's very, very important that you become aware of your thoughts mm-hmm. and aware of how you approach women because you just you do not know what's happening. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing with men. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of mm-hmm. a lot to unpack. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's especially in our uh, religious circles where, yeah, I'm curious to know how you, how did you reconcile and maybe how would you suggest survivors of, of abuse and trauma reconcile God's love for them? How did you begin to rediscover or to come to terms with that in your healing journey? And then we can also talk about God's view of sex but Hmm. God's love. How did you reconcile God's love for you? This is, this is sort of a answer that we hear, hear a lot, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but I think I began to appreciate God's love when I had my children. Wow. And mind you, I had my first child when I, I had my first child when I was 33 years old and she did not come from my body. She was my former husband's child, but she's still mine to this day. Wow. You know, her mom passed away. And so she's mine. She's always been mine. Mm. So she came when I was 33 and she was five. And so we had to get to know each other as mom and daughter. So it was much, much less intuitive than it is when the child comes from you and shares your genetics because then you recognize behaviors as, you know, 
yours. (laughs) So, you know, so we had to go through that process. But in going through that process and making all the mistakes I've made, I started to realize like that there was just nothing I would not do for her. And then when my others came along, sort of that instinct, that joy of just their existence, just thinking about them brought a smile to my face. You know, just thinking about my eldest daughter brought a smile to my face. Um, There's nothing they did to bring that smile to my face. It's just their being that brought that smile to my face. And it took me a long time, a long time to fully develop my understanding of God feeling that way about me. Mm. And, you know, much, much more, like much bigger than I could possibly feel um, about me. Once I, once that clicked in my head, I had no more doubts about God, but it took almost, it took over four decades for that to click in my head. And before that I doubted God, I had a, you know, very tumultuous relationship. I lost my faith at one point in time. I didn't believe there was a God because, you know, it just didn't make any sense. I was praying. I was crying out. I was hearing nothing. There was no way that there was a loving father behind any of what was happening to me. It was just so much. Mm-hmm. There's so much that was going on. And, and so, yeah, at one point in time, I was like, I'm not sure that God exists. Yeah. Um, and it, that is something that God has slowly restored in me is not just faith in his existence, but an understanding of his joy in me as Karen, just, just Karen. And so that's one of the things that has taught me to divorce actions from people, because that's one of the things that God does really well is look at our actions and condemn them while loving and embracing us as people. And he does that consistently all through the Bible, every story of, you know, whoever, Paul, David, you know, Hannah, I mean, just, just call somebody's name. Cain murdered his brother. Right. You know, God is the master of divorcing action from people. Mm -hmm. And so no matter what has happened and no matter what I have done, I don't, I didn't do anything for God to look at me and smile. That is happening because he decided to create me and he gave me life and gave me existence. And so the thought of me makes him smile, just like the thought of my children makes me smile whether it's a good day, whether it's a bad day, whether they annoyed me to no end or, yeah. you know, they're doing great, whether they picked up their clothes or not, whether somebody gave me some back chat or they said, yes, mommy to everything. Mm-hmm. I still think about them and then, and they're my babies. Yeah. Yeah. So that is that. And again, that was such a long process, David, To get to that point and a lot of wrestling with God, a lot of late nights and early mornings saying, where are you? Who are you? Show Mm. me who you are. Mm. You know, Mm. and at one point I wrote down, I actually had a vision board and I wrote on it spiritual goals to communicate with God for at least five minutes every morning. Mm -hmm. That's where I was. I had, I was not talking to God at all. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> a lot of growth. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate you sharing that it was a process. Um, That it's not an instantaneous, like suddenly I realized, you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> but a series of life events and 
it's almost like we often think of it as, you know, God has to give us a chance, but it's oftentimes God is like, give me a chance to reveal myself. And he's, he's patient with us. He's, it's a, it's a process. And um, yeah, I'm just encouraged to see how, you know, it was a process, but <laughs> Yeah, I I started with like five minutes a day and I just said, okay, I'm insisting on giving God five minutes a day. Yeah. And that grew to 15. Yeah. And then that grew to 30. And now God and I spend every, every morning. Yeah. We spend at least 30 to 45 minutes. And again, you know, I need to say here that I received a lot of spiritual support with this. Mm. you know i have spiritual i have mentors and people who when i get discouraged i go to them and say i feel discouraged and mm-hmm. i'm far i feel far away from god and you know people praying with me every day people praying for me every day mm-hmm. my mom my aunts my uncles my dad my <laughs> friends and family this is not a solo this, a solo not project a solitary journey not at all no not at all yeah so so that's another thing for people who are dealing with this Mm -hmm. i'm going to tell you you cannot do this on your own Mm -hmm. because i you know you've probably been trying to do it on your own for a long time but it just that's not going to happen you need to harness the resources around you the people around you who love you and if you are alone at the very least the you know clinical people in your life mm-hmm. you know your doctor you know a therapist mm-hmm. pastor someone mm-hmm. to help you on this journey because it's not this is not something you can do by yourself amen amen yeah we got to hear it we got to hear that you know this i think it's been said in previous episodes that we've had guests on that you know, the harm is usually caused in relationship and the healing also happens in relationship with, with God and with others. He has designed it such that other human beings are vehicles for our healing. So it's not a solo project. Absolutely. <clears throat> so this last this last bit, before I let you go, Dr. Karen, I, I, I do want you to talk a bit about how spirituality and sex comes together that indeed there is an ideal and a design that god had always had that spirituality and sex are are not the two different things two separate things right well you know god created us in his image and in Mm -hmm. his image he created sexual beings so this often feels blasphemous to people when I say it, but God is a sexual God. I mean, he has emotions, sexual emotions, because there's nothing that is in us that is outside of him. So the ability to have an orgasm, the ability to be aroused, all of that is a part of the emotional makeup of God. And the fact that it's so uncomfortable to say that. (laughs) I'm just, I'm just, I'm just like mind blown right now. I'm like, whoa. (laughs) Yeah, it feels like tracking. Yeah. Say that again. I'm tracking. I mean, all you're saying, I'm tracking. Like you're, you're not just pulling that out of thin air. You just track the logical thought. (laughs) Yes. But think about, think about your own like innate emotional response to that i think most people if i say to someone god is a sexual god the innate response is going to be one of rejection it's it's just not going to gel with what we've been taught about god now if i say god is a loving god that would be immediately embraced. Even if I say God is a jealous God, if I say God is a God of war, it -hmm. will be embraced. If I say God is loyal, he's kind, he's faithful, all of it will be embraced. If I say God is a sexual God, 
things are going to fall apart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely not. Absolutely not. He couldn't possibly yeah. be sexual. And yeah. So then my question to that would be, if God is not sexual, then where did our sexuality come from? Wow. Yeah. You know, I mean, we believe that in God, we live and move and have our being. We believe that we are created in his image by his design. Okay. We believe that God created marriage. We believe that he created the sexual act. Why do we not believe that God is a sexual being or that, you know, sexual emotions exist within who God is? Why do we not believe that when we believe all of these things? <laughs> wow. Wow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so this is how, you know, this is how sort of far we've gotten like in terms of where our paradigm lies, you know, and our perceptions of who God is, where they lie. Um, this is how far we've gotten that we, we do not, it's not just a matter of not accepting or realizing it's a matter of actively rejecting the idea of a sexual God of a God who created the ability to orgasm because he understands that. He, he designed it. He designed it. He understands it. It's part of his gift to us emotionally coming from in him. That burst of, of you know, feeling that you cannot describe is a part of God. Yeah. Right. And he wanted us to share that, to share it with him. Yeah. But that is not something that is discussed. And that is why I say when we start, when we start a discussion with our children, with young people, we need to start with a discussion about sex, the beauty of sex, what it is that God has bestowed upon us in that he has bestowed upon us the capacity to enjoy a pleasure that is so deep, so profound that it literally can pause your life for a second. I mean, people literally stop breathing. They lit, you know, in, in French is described as la petite mort, the little death. Okay. That is the capacity for pleasure that our God has created. And if children don't hear that, they have no context for the relationship in which that comes to its best fruition, okay? So that messaging should not begin with sex outside of marriage is wrong. That messaging should begin with God has given us this tremendous capacity for pleasure, and the way that this capacity, this pleasure is best achieved is in a safe marital relationship where you are able to relax, where you are able to have faith that you and your partner are working together, that you all are building together, that you're like exploring each other sexually, and your fulfillment comes as that process deepens and deepens and as your love for each other deepens and deepens. Mm. And that is critical to the marriage relationship. It's a part of the bonding mm -hmm. that happens emotionally and mentally mm. in marriage. Mm. Mm. And because we don't set that framework of joy of beauty, of deep pleasure as being what sex is, we set up a state of confusion in our kids because on the one hand, we're saying, don't do this, don't do that. You know, sex outside of marriage is wrong. You know, all of these different things. And, you know, we're not having like a theological argument here. That's not yeah. the issue. 
It, the right. issue is not that saying any of those things is wrong. The issue is that it sets up a conundrum in the minds of kids who are now seeing all sorts of different sexual acts. I mean, you can just get on your computer and see people having sex in all sorts of different ways and all sorts of different conditions, you know, mm-hmm. men and men, women and women, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. people, in, you know, tied up, being beaten, yeah. all sorts of I mean, you can see all kinds of different permutations yeah. and combinations of yeah. sexual acts. And the idea of the joy and beauty of sex in marriage is completely lost if we as a church do not preach it. Mm. The idea of sex as being from God, as being a part of God, God not just giving us sex, but deeply understanding sex because he understands an orgasm has felt an orgasm like god this is a part of who he is yeah yeah he wouldn't give what he wouldn't understand what it would feel like that doesn't yeah he'd have to know what it feels like to give it exactly yeah i mean none of this exists outside of god Mm. none of it exists outside of god Mm -hmm. And the enormity of that, I think, is not, it's not embraced. It's, I don't think people believe it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't think people <clears throat> believe that a, an orgasm is a part of God's emotional range. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really appreciate how there is a way that we need to approach our understanding of our sexuality differently, that there is the goodness and the inherent beauty in it that we should not just completely put it to the side, completely ignore, never confront, never address, out of fear that we might misuse it. Exactly. Yeah. That, that, is, that is precisely the fear. Mm-hmm. And that fear causes us to do the opposite of what we should do. Right. It causes us to do the thing we're afraid of doing. Exactly. Wow. <laughs> Wow. No, Dr. Karen, I really appreciate it and your time. This has been amazing. And again, uh, I think in the very first episode you mentioned, you do have a private practice and you did share some of your details that you are available. And we'll share those details in the show, um, the show notes for people so people can reach out. And so we thank you so much for, for spending time with us and sharing your story with us as well. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, David. It's my pleasure. I'm happy to come back anytime. Oh, oh, that's hey, we take that seriously. We take that seriously. <laughs>